good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be today. Uh, we come today to what I'm convinced is the forgotten section of Romans 8. We read through the book of Romans, and especially when we get to Romans 8, we are always quite eager to read that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are glad to read that we are not debtors to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, but we are now, because we are led by the Spirit of God, we are sons of God. We are thrilled to hear passages like Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then it's almost as though we jump down to verse 23, and begin to consider our own state again. We consider the fact that we will be redeemed, that the, adopted, the adoption of the sons of God will come to fruition on the last day. And for some reason, we skip verses 19 through 22 as if it is not a glorious reality or perhaps we might misunderstand it and think, well, this pertains nothing to my own salvation. It doesn't really have any bearing on my own life. Now, this is a great error <laughs> When we come to the scriptures, we must understand that every single word that is written is certainly inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And he does not add words when they are not necessary. And he certainly does not give words that we simply should, should just gloss over. Instead, what we find in this particular passage of scripture is God's uh, eschatological end of creation. Let me explain that for a moment. What will all of this, all of that which you look at, that which you perceive in the world, what will all of that come to when this world is rolled up like a scroll? What is the end of creation? What is God's intention for it? And in Romans 8, he gives us exactly that. And so if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is Romans chapter eight. We'll start in verse 18 and make our way through verse 30. I would remind you brothers and sisters that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Romans chapter eight, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray together. 
Father, this passage is astonishingly transcendent. Lord, the entirety of it, we stand amazed in the midst of our sufferings that there are glories to be revealed that are so much better than the sufferings that are here that they're not even worthy to be compared to. Lord, we rejoice that the creation will be changed. It waits, it longs for something more. Lord, we rejoice that the adoption that we have been given by the spirit will ultimately come to fruition in the adoption of our bodies when we are raised on the last day. Lord, we rejoice that the spirit of God indwells us, that it intercedes for us, that it groans for us. Lord, we rejoice that you are actively working together for the good of those who love you and are called according to to your purposes. And Lord, we rejoice that there is not a single thing on this planet that is outside your control. We rejoice that you are working together the smallest, most minute of things and the grandest and largest of events to the glory of your name and the good of your saints. And so Father, would you help us in the midst of that to see what you were doing in creation, to hear creation's proclamation and Lord, to look forward to its redemption. It is in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray, amen. You may be seated. Romans chapter eight, today we really want to spend most of our time in verses 19 through 22. Now, the reason I say that this is a peculiar passage is because it really is the passage in Romans eight that if someone was citing and they were quoting Romans eight, they would perhaps find themselves being a little less thrilled to spend time memorizing 19 through 22. It's surrounded by all of these glorious realities that we have been set free from condemnation, that we have this great glory on the horizon that encourages us amidst our suffering. We're reminded the spirit of God indwells us We're reminded that all those whom he has justified, he will sanctify and thus he will glorify. We're reminded that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And so we come to this passage and we think, did Paul take a random detour here from all of the glory that he has been laying out for us? And I think that we come to that because, and we ask those questions because we really don't understand what God's intention in creation is. You don't, we don't understand the purpose of a tree. We don't understand the purpose of the ocean as we look out over it. And I will go ahead and confess to you, it's very likely at some point during this sermon, you're gonna think Lawson is a tree hugger. (laughs) But here's the deal, brothers and sisters, we have such a weak theology of creation. We we think that all of the doctrines of creation are laid out in Genesis one and two, but they really have no bearing on our current reality. And even more so than that, on the eternal state. There's a reason we call it the new heavens and the new earth that there will be creation present there, that there will be trees, there will be the, the, the things that we see in Genesis one and two, but they will be all the more glorious. And not only will they be all the more glorious, they will not be cursed like the world that we live in. And so today it is my hope that as we walk through this, we will both touch the beginning of God's revelation in Genesis, but we will reach all the way to the very end and we will see God's intention in creation and ultimately how that flows from the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because if there is no redemption of man, there is no need for redemption of creation. But since there has been redemption of man, since that redemption is not only the redemption of the soul, but the body as well, God will make certain to redeem the whole creation that man might dwell in it for his glory. So let's turn our attention to the text. Romans chapter eight, verse 19 says this, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, the very first question that I need to ask is what does Paul mean when he refers to creation? Because you look at this and we should rightly note that man is a creature 
This is a distinction we often forget. Man is created apart from God actively molding Adam from the dust of the earth and then breathing the breath of life into him, Adam would have never come to exist. There was no means of him working that out himself, no matter what modern science would articulate to you. God created Adam. He is a creature. But here it seems in this particular text that Paul makes somewhat of a distinction. And the distinction is pretty much laid out like this. For the creation, he lays that category over there. And then he says, wait, this creation is waiting for something. It's eagerly longing for what? The revealing of the sons of God. And there you have somewhat of a distinction. And the distinction is not so much with just man, but the distinction is with the sons of God. Now, if I could simply lay this out for you, the sons of God are those who have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've already read in Romans 8 that all those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. And so what is the creation doing? The creation is distinct as it is in this particular text from the revealing of the sons of God. And so we have this kind of categorical distinction, creation over here and the sons of God over here. So let's ask the question, what is creation? What is creation? I think it breaks up into two very specific categories. First, creation is that which is of nature itself. And secondly, we would say that nature speaks of all those creatures who have the breath of life in them. And I wanna build this out for you because I'm convinced that when we use the word, when we, when we use the word creation, we think about it rather broadly. And I don't know about you, but when I think about categories broadly, I normally don't ever identify those things that are inside of the category. So if I told you to walk outside and to view creation, your immediate response would be to look out at everything and see it herald. Now, we can say that's all of God's creation, but we want to be a bit more specific so that when we look at the individual tree, at the ocean, at the forest that God has raised up, when we see the peaks of mountains, we can say that that is a part of God's creation. God has ownership and is the creator of every forest you ever lay your eyes on. They belong to him. They belong to him. He owns those. And not only does he owns the, own those, they are there for his glory. They are there. He watched those be raised from seed to full-blown tree for his glory and renown. They're his forest. Not only do we see that in the forest, but we see that on the oceans. Can you even just recall the passages in Job where God sets the barriers of the ocean and you look out on this mighty force that if you found yourself lost in it, you would think that the whole world was just ocean because of its magnitude. And God says, I've laid out its boundaries. I am the one who restrains it. I am the one who keeps it and makes it do exactly what I have called it to do. The ocean belongs to him. He is the creator and therefore he commands it. And not only that, when we stand looking at mountains that are so far above our comprehension, we see the peaks reach into the skies and even be clouded by the atmosphere. Those belong to him. Their grandeur as we stare at them has nothing in comparison to the creator of them. He is the knitter together of all natural, all the natural world, the cedar forest, the oceans, the mountains and their peaks. And even as we stand looking up into the sky, we see stars and all of these heavenly bodies. He placed every single one of those there. They belong to him. He knows them all by name. He sustains them. Hebrews would tell us that, he, that the whole world is upheld by the word of his power. Apart from him keeping them in place, each and every one of them would cease to exist. What great glory and authority it takes to hold the sun in place and keep it burning. 
It's his. All of creation belongs to him. And not only that, every time that we see a particular weather system make its way through, it does so at the command of our God. It belongs to him. Every ounce of nature is his. It's his. He owns it. He created it. He knitted it together. He has storehouses of snow and rain, and he tells the lightning where to strike. All of this belongs to him. And not only that, not only do we think of creation in the natural, but we also think of creation in light of all of these creatures that God has breathed the breath of life into. Do you know that the reason any creature is animate is because God has placed his breath in them. Apart from him giving them life, they have no life. And he creates them in a rather distinct way. And inside of the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, we even see him lay out distinctions of their intent. We see herds and swarms and schools of creatures, and I love this word, that team on the earth. They fill it with life. Why do they fill it with life? Because it's God's good design to declare his glory, to make his splendor and creativity known. All of creation belongs to him. Every gnat, every fish, and every bird of the air belongs to him. And not only that, he gives all of this great wildlife on the earth, such as bison and elephant and wolves and bears and the like, and all of them belong to him. You stand before something so magnificent, perhaps it is that you have found yourself at the zoo or maybe you have faced a bear face to face, which sounds terrifying. And you're looking out at this and you're thinking what magnificence, what power, what grandeur. And you look at that and we must say that flows from our God who is the creator of all things. He gives all the livestock of the field, the chicken, the pigs, the cattle, everything that is given to man for its own sustaining. He gives us the domesticated creatures that we hold so dear, all of these things, whether it be nature itself or the creatures that have the very breath of life in them, they all belong to him. A simple way to say it is he stands over all of them and says, mine, mine. He owns them. Now we read through that and we think to ourselves, why are we being so specific? Why are we spending so much time dealing with the creation itself? It's because brothers and sisters, here's my question. When was the last time you went outside and you stared at a tree to the glory of God? When was the last time you stood at the ocean and you saw its grandeur and you said, oh, God created this for his glory. He created this so that when I saw it, I would think what a glorious creator. He knit all this together for his own glory and praise. And nature, as it were, is proclaiming. Here's the simple way that most of the time we think about creation. It goes far past this, but here's the category we normally place all creation in. Romans 1.20 is the simple way to see it, a more concise understanding. In Psalm 19, a bit more poetic. The creation is proclaiming. This is what we are most familiar with. Creation is shouting, creation is proclaiming. We normally refer to it as general revelation or natural revelation. It is speaking. So let's see what Romans 1.20 says and how well it speaks. Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. By the way, that's referring to the individual who looks at all of these things and says, no, 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 there is no God. Know this, if you pay close attention to Romans 1.18 and following, the major argument there is every single human being on the planet knows that there is a God and they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That is how effectively God has created the world to proclaim his invisible attributes. 
Now, the psalmist writes it a bit more poetically. Psalm 19, one through four. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Every single word that is mentioned here about the actions of the heavens, heavens declare, sky proclaim. And then you look at this and what you have to understand is that creation is ascribed preaching language. It declares That's what the preacher is called to do, to declare, to proclaim the word of God. All of this is preaching language. God has not set up frail preachers in creation. They shout these things, they make them known. And this is normally where our understanding of creation stops. We think that creation is just proclaiming these things. And a simple note to take from this is all of those things that God has created and called mine, that those natural things that occur in our world and the animals that he has placed the breath, the breath of life in, he has claimed them as mine and they obey and proclaim. And may I say, they normally obey more faithfully than man. But what else is it that, that creation does? That's where we normally start when we deal with our understanding of nature. But in this text, Paul goes further. He doesn't just deal with natural revelation in the sense that it is proclaiming, it's pouring out speech, that all of these things belong to him or are giving off a specific message, the specific message being his eternal power and divine nature. But here in this text, what does it say? For the creation waits. How does it wait? It waits with eager longing. That's rather peculiar, isn't it? Can creation wait? Is this just a personification or is there something deeper inside of creation that it longs for something? Well, let's understand the word that's set out here. We do see creation waiting, but we see creation waiting in a very, very particular way. This word eager longing is only used one other time in the New Testament. And I want to show you this. Philippians 1.20, you can even turn there. Philippians 1.20 is the other time this word that is translated eager longing, which really is emphatic, isn't it? It's almost like you don't need the eager. Longing bears enough weight in and of itself to supply the eager. But instead, he's emphatic. In Philippians 1.20, it says this. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, as it were, from prison, thinking about his future state. And he says this, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation, exact same word, and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Simple question, how deeply do you think the apostle Paul longed for the glory of Jesus Christ? I mean, you see this laid out, don't you? Paul would be executed at a chopping block, longing for what's on the horizon. Paul would suffer to the glory of God. This is the same man who penned Romans 8, 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth compared to the glory that is to be revealed. He is longing for the exaltation and renown of Jesus Christ. How deeply do you think Paul felt that? Because for him to use the same word in regard to his own desire for the glory of God, for creation, that just shouts to me that creation does have this deep longing for something. 
It's looking forward to some glorious reality that's on the horizon. And that longing does supply that it does not have or does not, it does not possess that which it will finally obtain. It's longing for something. Well, what is it longing for? Here it says that it is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, it's longing for something that it itself will not possess seemingly. It's, it's longing for the revealing, the revelation of the sons of God. It's longing for something for the Christian. It's longing for a day that perhaps is on the horizon. It's looking forward to this moment in history. So let's simply ask the question, what is the revealing of the sons of God? If you jump down to verse 23 and 24, which we'll cover in full next week, it says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What is the day that creation itself is longing for? It is longing for the day where the sons of God, that application of adoption comes to fruition. Now, perhaps it is you think, oh, well, we've already been adopted. The answer to that is, of course, yes. We have been adopted by the Spirit of God, but there will be a day, brothers and sisters, where the whole body will be adopted, where our nature will be changed completely, and we will be made right to dwell eternally with the Father. That's the completion of adoption. And that's what creation itself is longing for. It's looking forward to this day. It's longing. And I mean, you can even imagine in its proclamation, there is an angst in creation soul looking forward to the day when the glory of the sons of God will ultimately be revealed. That is the redemption of the bodies. And if we should go a bit further to give it a specific day, what is that day? Blake read this text last week and it's pertinent really throughout the entirety of Romans 8. But here is 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. What is this moment that creation is longing for? This is the moment. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then, who, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. This is the day that creation is longing for. It's longing for the redemption of the body. It's longing for this moment when the sons of God will be changed forevermore. And that perhaps leads you to ask a question, why in the world is creation longing for my bodily redemption? Why is it longing for my bodily redemption? I mean, you think about this and you know, I think we always place perhaps some selfishness in any type of longing. You're wondering what's on the horizon, what will creation receive at the redemption of my body. Well, the first thing that we need to ask is what did creation lose when Adam fell? What did creation lose? What, what, what happened at that moment when Adam ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and then God cursed the world because of his sin? Let's look at what the next verse says. It says, for the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now, if I could pause here for just a moment, we really do not understand the true wickedness of sin. Not only does it corrupt the man, it corrupts everything the man touches. You think about how creation was laid out. Go back to the garden for a moment. What do you think the relationship was between Adam, unfallen Adam, and the garden that he was planted in? You think the trees rebelled? How, how much fruit do you think that they produced? Did you think that Adam ever pricked his finger on a thorn or a thistle? 
You think the animals, as he's naming them, marching them along, giving them their names, do you think that they bit at him? Perhaps clawed at him a bit? And it's almost as if you're looking at this and you're thinking, well, well, no. Immediately the response is, of course not, because your whole understanding of our relationship with creation is molded by the fact that sin exists. Apart from sin's existence, is there any disharmony between man, the one whom God set as authority over all creation, his vice regents, when he laid on them the image of God and told them to go forth into the world, multiply and subdue it, would there have been disharmony there? No, because God's authority would have been made manifest and known in the fact that we went forth bearing the image of God free from sin, but the moment, the moment that sin entered into the world, that relationship becomes shattered. We do not understand the true effects of sin. Brothers and sisters, it places us with enmity, at enmity with everything God created. It places us at enmity first and foremost with our God. And that is the greatest need that we have to be reconciled, to be redeemed from that, from that disjointed relationship. But it spreads, it spreads certainly. And you know this full well, sin as it enters in breaks every type of relationship it touches. And we often exempt creation from this, but God does not. And not only does God not exempt creation from this, he lays it out for us quite clearly in this passage and in various others going all the way back to Genesis chapter three when he lays out the curse. So let's ask the question, what does it mean that creation was subjected to futility? When we think of this word and really Romans has already given us three uses of the words that he's going to deal with. So if you look at verse 21, it adds some other categories. So there's futility that we find in verse 20, but then going further in 21, it says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Now, here are the, two, here are the three ways this word, these words are used already in the book of Romans. First, Romans 1.21. You'll be familiar that Romans chapter one deals with the fallen nature of man and his continual descent into sin. So Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, so speaking of man, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. Now, if we were to go back and do an exposition of this, we would essentially say that, that futility is a uselessness. It's an emptiness. It's a worthlessness. And here we see creation is subject to futility. Not only is it subject to futility, in the next verse, like I mentioned, it is subject to corruption and bondage. Well, what is corruption? Romans 1, through 23. Claiming to be wise, again, speaking of man, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal, same word, corrupted. Mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Man exchanged the truth of God for a lie. He took what was uncorruptible and exchanged it for what was corruptible. And ever since that moment in the garden, Creation itself has been given over to degradation, destruction, and perishability. The world burns. It longs. It groans. This is what man did, and this is how ultimately we see it expressed inside of creation. And the very last thing that we see is that it is bound ultimately to this corruption and to this futility. Romans 6.16, 6, we've been working through recently, Romans chapter 6, uh, understanding the concept of slavery. It says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? That exact same word, bondage, is the word that's used for slavery. 
So creation itself is subjected to futility, corruption, and bondage to both of those things. Why? Because man sinned. Because man sinned and rebelled against his creator. In short, the creation is subject and enslaved to corruption and futility. But what's important to note from this is as we're working through this verse, for the creation was subject to futility, but then there is this interjection that says, not willingly. Not willingly. Now that's an odd word to interject here. Certainly we know that creation, it is inanimate. It's certainly not going to subject itself to futility, but it did not willfully go into this state. Now, perhaps it is you ask, well, why would we bring that up? Jump back to Romans 1. How did man go into that state? Man went into that state willingly. Dove head first, headlong in. Adam reaching out, taking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and eating. Man went in to this terrible fallen state by his own will. Creation then is almost as if it is collateral damage to our own willfully going in and rebelling against our God. Creation is then cursed. And that leads us into our next point. But because of him who subjected it, I want you to notice the language here. There's somewhat of a debate. And the debate is, well, who subjected then creation to this state? Perhaps the very first assessment would be, oh, well, it's Adam. Brothers and sisters, it is an Adam. It was God. Pay very close attention to the text in Genesis chapter three, verses 17 through 19. And to Adam, he said, this is God speaking, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Notice the language here, cursed is the ground because of you. God curses the ground, but I want you to pay close attention to this. God curses the ground primarily because of Adam's sin. Consider for a moment, how how can that which God created, and not only that which God created, but that which God placed under the authority and rule of image bearers, gladly submit to one whose image has been marred by sin? It certainly will not. It will bear thorns and thistles and God makes this quite clear to us. It goes on to say, you shall not eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you were dust and to dust you shall return. God looks at creation and he says, they rebelled against me. They have willfully gone headlong into futility, into corruption and they are bound to it show them their state. That the creation will not submit. The creation will not gladly bear fruit without thorns and thistles because we have brought on a great corruption in the world. And creation sits here longing, longing for the redemption, longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, a simple thing to ask, a simple way to consider this is how do we see this futility and corruption today? Every single time, you handle anything in the garden and you find yourself pricked by its thorns and thistles, you need to remember that this is the effect of sin on a fallen world. When nature draws your blood, we should look back to the garden and say, my first father. You see, it's preaching to us. It shows us that there is disharmony, that there is disunity. It shows us that 
You brought this on, this sinful world, and here I am, and I'm bearing thorns and thistles. We were called to cultivate the garden, not to curse it. And yet here we stand in this world that has been cursed by God due to our sin and we experience its ramifications constantly. We experience it in the the tiniest thorns and thistles. We experience it in earthquakes and natural disasters. And we experience it when animals refuse to submit to man's authority. And if you have a dog, you know exactly what I'm saying. This is not intended. This is not intended. This is never meant to be. Man is to be the vice regent, the authority, the thing that causes all creation to be subject to it, to the glory of God. And here we have creation due to our own sin, rebelling against us. And creation itself longs for this to be made right. So we go on. There's this interjection of a word in hope. Throughout this section, hope plays a really prominent role. There is a reminder of it over and over again. Not only that, but there is a definition given later on in Romans 8 when it speaks of this hope. It says in verse 24, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And here we see creation itself hoping. It's longing for something. The text that reads, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So what is creation hoping for? Creation is hoping and longing for the day when not only will it be free from the curse, it will be free forever from the thing that brought it about. Because brothers and sisters, The consummation of the kingdom of God, the world's being completely eradicated of sin is most certainly for our good, but it is for the good of all of creation because sin taints everything that it touches. It ruins it, it breaks it. And so the thing that creation itself in hope is longing for is to be set free from its corruption. It no longer wishes to draw our blood. It no longer desires. It does not want to be rebellious. The only reason it is is because sin certainly entered in and God justly cursed it because of it. And so what does it long for? It longs to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, if I could break this out for us in a simple way, going back to 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, you see this moment when the day of the Lord arrives, but it's longing for this freedom that will ultimately occur at that day of the Lord. What does that mean ultimately that the creation is longing for? The creation is longing for the new creation. It's longing for the new heavens and new earth. It wants to be in that glorious place free from sin that it has so long been tainted by. Going on a bit further, it says in verse 22, for we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until until now. It is groaning out longing that it would be free from sin's snare. Now, if I could make an aside here for just a moment, and this perhaps is borrowing from next week. But if creation groans louder than we do, then we are fools. Creation groans for freedom from sin. Dear saint, those of you who have been bought by the blood of Jesus, how loudly do you groan in this world to be free from sin's snare? Because creation's shouting, it's proclaiming, it's longing deeply for this. And sometimes we're so accustomed to this sin-cursed world that we don't have any internal longings. May creation never, never shout louder than those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. 
We should long for the redemption of our body. We should long for the new heavens and the new earth, the way that creation does, far past that, infinitely more. So creation goes forth longing for the new heavens and new earth. And in that place, dear brothers and sisters, the reason it longs for this is because no longer will it be subject to corrupted man. Have you considered just for a moment the way that we handle creation? God gives us a tree and instead of burning it historically, we have carved it into an idol. That is creation being subject to futility again and again. You see gold that bursts forth from various minds and you look at it and you say, ah, bow before its glory. No, we worship the creator. We look at the one who has created that, who has knit it together and we say, see how good and glorious our God is and his creativity. We never, brothers and sisters, bow to mortal creation. It is subject to futility. And here we have the glory of God laid out. And instead of bowing before his authority, we worship his creation. What a great and heinous error. Because in the new heavens and new earth, the reality is that creation will be subject to a glorified man who will cultivate in a good and glorious way. Do not misunderstand. Work will most certainly be in eternity and we will live in a new heavens and a new earth. And as we live in that land, we will no longer curse. We will only, only cultivate the way that God intended and we look forward to this glory. Creation itself is looking forward to this glory. Brown said it this way. I find this to be really well put. If for man's sake alone, the earth was cursed. So why was the earth cursed? The earth was cursed because of Adam's sin. It cannot surprise us that it should share in our recovery. And if so, to represent it as sympathizing with man's miseries and as looking forward to his complete redemption as the period of its own emancipation. The only time, the only way in which creation itself will be redeemed is if man himself is redeemed. And so what does our Lord do, even in this passage where we're dealing with the redemption of man? He interjects its ramifications. He reminds us that at the end of all things, there most certainly will be a new heaven and a new earth. And creation is longing for this glorious place in which the sons of God will dwell Brothers and sisters, the new heavens and new earth are something that our eyes should be regularly fixed upon. We overlook these things. We don't look forward to not only eternity, we look forward to the eternity that God has laid out for us. We must have a robust understanding of what is to come. We must look forward to the reality that as we dwell in perfect harmony, harmony with our God, He has set up a whole new heavens and new earth for us to glorify Him in. And so we see that creation will most certainly recover and it will recover at the same time as it were with man. But to go a bit further, if we look at verse 22 and we'll conclude with these thoughts. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, some of you know this language more intimately than others. But creation is groaning. It's longing for something. And the language that the Apostle Paul uses here is it's laboring, as it were, in the pains of childbirth until now. This means that there is a deep hope in its suffering. There's a deep glory, a longing amidst all the pain that is certainly coming about because there's something on the horizon. There's something coming that will ultimately birth forth something more glorious than anything this world has experienced as of yet. And I mean that. Remember, the new heavens and new earth is not making our way back to the garden. 
That is the most foolish thought ever. That is a ground that has already been shaken. I want the ground that cannot be. I want the new heavens and new earth. I want something that's better than anything that has been here. I want what's been bought for me by Christ. That's what we long for. And so creation itself is longing, knowing that the price has been paid, redemption has been accomplished, and it's looking forward to the inauguration of all that Jesus bought, the kingdom that he has established and the kingdom that he sits on the throne of. And he, they, they long for it. There's pain, there's suffering and miss of it, but it is a longing pain. So what then will cause, when will the groaning cease? I want to read to you two Psalms, Psalm 96 and 98. And I want you to notice the language that are in, that's inside of these. We read through the Psalms often and we almost throw out any understanding of time. We read through the Psalms and we think, okay, this is all dealing with the immediate ramifications of what David or the other Psalmist is dealing with. But brothers and sisters, David and the other psalmist often had their eyes fixed on the future. They look forward to that glorious kingdom. Let's read Psalm 96 and then 98. Psalm 96 verse 11 through 13 says this, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord for he comes. Listen to how he comes for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. When is it that the trees will clap? When the Lord returns in glory to judge in righteousness. Psalm 98, seven through nine says this, let the sea roar in all that fills it. The world and those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth he will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. When is, when will creation's groaning cease? The second advent of our Lord. When he comes, not for redemption because that's been accomplished, but when he comes to conquer all of his foes. When all of those who continue to subject the world to futility, when all of those wicked men who do not bow to the God of infinite glory, the creator of everything, when those men are laid underneath his feet and ultimately more so than that, when sin is forever banished, then creation will stop its groaning and it will start its singing. It will look, it will have this, glory about it, the hope, the birthing pains that it originally had will most certainly give birth to praise and to glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When he comes again conquering, all of creation will clap their hands and the saints of God most certainly should join them. Brothers and sisters, this is God's world. The creation has been crafted for his glory. Today, it proclaims his handiwork in the sky above. Today, it cries out concerning its creator. It shouts of his divinity and power. Today, it groans. Oh, how it groans. It groans for its redemption. It groans for all things to be made new. It groans for Christ Jesus to come and to conquer. It groans for the day when he will come with the trumpet's blast and the archangels shout. Why? Because on that day, the sons of God will be revealed. And at their revealing, the corruption of sin will be banished to hell and the creation will be made new and never again will it be subject to futility. How can we know this? Because our King has already spoken 
I would point your attention to Revelation 21, 1 through 5, and we'll conclude right here. This is what creation is longing for. This is what the sons of God should be longing for. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. All the futility, all the corruption, all the bondage, completely and totally removed by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then what is left? And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Let's pray together.